Hi, I'm Abby, a functional dietitian and gut health expert. Hi, I'm Jillian, a functional dietitian that specializes in women's health and hormones. And this is Your Body Has Your Back podcast. Together, we have over 20 years of experience supporting clients in healing their gut and hormone symptoms and guiding them from overwhelm to ease in their body. We help clients reconnect with their body and transform their lives using targeted nutrition, lifestyle, and supplement therapies. Finding optimal health in our modern chaotic world is more challenging than ever. And now it's our mission to provide you with the tools you need to strengthen your relationship with your body, to resolve your gut and hormone symptoms, and become your greatest health advocate. Join us for honest, inspired and offbeat conversations on health that will leave you feeling empowered to take action so that that you can can trust your body has your back. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are so excited for today's episode, which is actually going to be a two-part episode. So today we are going to start covering inflammation. Inflammation is one of those buzzy words that really gets thrown around left and right in our modern world and particularly on social media platforms. Inflammation is a word that I think most people are generally familiar with or they kind of identify. But what Abby and I have noticed is that most people honestly don't really know what inflammation actually is. And there's a lot of confusion and misinformation out there about what drives or causes inflammation, the role that inflammation plays in health and disease. So this episode is going to really focus on clearing up all the confusion around inflammation and really helping you to understand and identify if you might be experiencing symptoms of chronic inflammation. Part two of this episode is going to really focus on strategies for lowering inflammation naturally. So really kind of uh, diving into the action steps. But for the purpose of today, we are going to talk all things inflammation and hopefully you will feel really confident about uh, what inflammation actually is moving forward. All right, let's define it. So what is inflammation? Well, first we want to start with inflammation is not all bad. Let's just start there, get on the same page. Inflammation is a protective response where the immune system recognizes and removes harmful or foreign stimuli and begins the healing process. The inflammatory process is part of the innate immune system or our first response immune system that protects against infectious and non-infectious agents. The process of inflammation can either be acute which occurs immediately after the injury and lasts for a few days. Or if that inflammatory response lasts for more than six weeks, it can become chronic where inflammation may last for months or even years. So acute and chronic, there's kind of two different phases to inflammation. So the inflammatory process is induced by tissue damage, maybe from trauma. We could talk about physical trauma microbial actions, so we can think about pathogens or microbes in the body, as well as chemical compounds. We can think about the whole category of toxins. We can think about environmental pollutants that might stimulate the immune system. So activated immune cells generate inflammatory mediators or chemicals that signal the need for repair. So these mediators trigger the typical big signs of inflammation. We've got redness, we've got heat, swelling, pain, and that brings blood flow and resources to the injury site 
for that healing to occur. So the type of immune cells and chemical mediators involved are all variable, and they depend on several factors like the type of inducer, the duration of the injury, and kind of genetic, multiple genetic loci that are kind of going on in the process. Generally, the immune cells involved in the inflammation process change and progress when a condition moves from acute inflammation into chronic inflammation. So in acute inflammation, neutrophils, which might be a familiar name, we're not going to get too technical with diving into these names, but are the initial and most predominant cells. These immune cells attack the foreign antigen or whatever it is that's kind of causing the injury through various mechanisms, uh, such as the release of reactive oxygen species, inflammatory cytokines, so we have IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and other chemical mediators. These protective immune responses all create short-term inflammation as a means to eliminate the offending agent and conclude that inflammatory cycle. So in acute inflammation, the inflammatory cycle ideally has a beginning and an end, where the inflammatory response concludes once the clearance of the offending injury or foreign agent has occurred resulting in kind of clearing of those immune cells and dissipating and stopping the signal for continued healing. So I kind of like to picture the acute inflammatory response as like a wave in the ocean. It builds, it hits its peak, and then it crashes and recedes. So we've got conclusion to it. However, if the offending foreign antigen is not successfully neutralized, the process of acute inflammation doesn't conclude and it will progress into chronic inflammation because there's more prolonged need for healing. This is where that initial inflammatory response wave, we're going with our metaphor here, never recedes because the offending injury continues to stimulate the immune system. So chronic inflammation involves a progressive infiltration of other inflammatory immune cells, such as macrophages, lymphocytes, plasma cells into those kind of offending tissue sites. These immune cells also produce inflammatory cytokines. They also bring other factors like growth factors and enzymes and antibodies and immune complexes and contribute to the progression of tissue damage and actually secondary repair, things like fibrosis and granuloma formation, all with the major goal of eliminating that foreign agent. But we've got some collateral damage that gets created in the process of healing. So that acute inflammation transitions into this chronic inflammation when the root cause or foreign agent is not remediated. So in functional medicine, we like to think of ourselves as inflammation detectives. I totally get like an image there. <laughs> as a major part of our job is definitely to identify and address the actual root causes that contribute to chronic inflammation. So if we think about the chronic inflammation being a attack stuck in someone's foot, you know, we could put a Band-Aid over that foot. We could put some ointment around it. We could put some numbing cream on it. We could, you know, dress it up with like happy stickers. We could do a lot of things around it. But until we actually get to the root cause and pull the actual thumbtack out of that foot, we're not going to have a conclusion to that inflammatory cycle. And so that is the idea of the root cause, actually identifying what is the theoretical thumbtack in the foot and helping to address it so that the body can naturally come to the conclusion of inflammation. So we're going to speak more to that in a minute in terms of what those root causes are. But first, how would you know if you're experiencing chronic inflammation? So Jilly's going to dive into the signs and symptoms 
um, associated with chronic inflammation. That was a great breakdown of, of what inflammation is and the difference between acute and chronic inflammation, which is just so important to understand. And I'm kind of obsessed with the thumbtack analogy. That was great. You you had me with that one. Um, I may need to use that. So I didn't make that up. I think I got that from somebody. I can't remember where or when, okay. but I sat for a long time with that inflammation because I was like, too much information, not enough information. <laughs> like Such an important thing for us. Yeah, the, yeah. the concept is so important because I think as we'll kind of delve into, there's so much of these things cause inflammation when really, as we're going to show, like a lot of our beliefs around causes like aren't actually causes. Exactly, exactly. And we are going to dive into that a lot more. Um, But before we do that, let's talk about clinical signs and symptoms of inflammation. And something I just want to point out, you know, or build upon um, before we talk about kind of specifics with you know, clinical signs and symptoms is that, you know, chronic inflammation or that type of inflammation that Abby just described that, you know, involves the immune system kind of permanently being turned on or those pro-inflammatory messengers being kind of released on a chronic basis. This is really central. This chronic inflammation is central to almost every single disease state and chronic health condition to some degree, which I, I think is just crazy, right? So, you know, chronic inflammation is a really big deal, which is obviously why we're, we're covering this, um, you know, in a couple episodes. But I just wanted to point that out. And what I want to do now is walk you through some of the really common kind of overt signs and symptoms that might indicate that chronic inflammation is an issue for you. This could be a very, very long list. So we wanted to kind of... Um, you know, pull the really key things that we think about if a client comes to us and says, hey, I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z. And one of the first things that pops into our mind is inflammation. So the first one is skin issues, particularly acne, eczema, and psoriasis. So inflammation is always um, a big component of these, or at least a component of these, particularly with our eczema and psoriasis. Um, But certainly acne can be inflammatory um, as well. Mood-related issues like anxiety and depression. Um, Depression is actually considered a pro-inflammatory state, and there is a very strong correlation between depression and um, higher levels of certain inflammatory blood markers, many of which Abby just kind of mentioned or touched on. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about labs in a minute, but I just think it's really interesting that there's um, such a strong correlation here. And, you know, I, I... I'm curious what your thoughts are, Abby, but I don't feel like that's talked about very much at all, especially when it comes to mood disorders. No, I don't. I don't think so at all. I mean, I feel like the what's generally talked about is is you know like serotonin and yep. like this kind of need for almost as though we have a deficiency in like an SSRI. Yeah, and yeah. it's you know that that is like the one perspective that. Yeah that we're given when there's so much of a of a gut and a body kind of role in that like depression model which is like much more you know what what we're able to actually manipulate which is right. the positive side of it right it, exactly and to to kind of build on what you're mentioning you know with the serotonin in inflammatory cells, inflammatory molecules within the central nervous system can essentially disrupt the metabolism of these mood-related neurotransmitters. So imbalances 
are a part of, you know, many of these mood disorders, but is it that, yeah, someone's deficient or is there something that is creating that dysfunction and, and leading to these imbalances? And I want to be really clear that just like every other health condition that Abby and I mention on this podcast, there is typically never one singular root cause. It's usually the perfect storm, a lot of different dynamics that are contributing to these symptoms or this disease state. Similarly, depression and other mood disorders are nuanced. And there are subsets of people that can experience these um, mood-related disorders and issues independently of inflammation. We have data that tells us that. But chronic low-grade inflammation is a big, big factor with mood disorders as a whole. And I think it's incredibly important for people to have this information because it might shed light on some significant opportunities for them to, um, you know, support their body and to see progress with these things. So that's, you know, kind of the point in, in calling this one out in particular. Another really common symptom associated with chronic inflammation is joint pain. Something that Abby, Abby and I will hear a lot from the clients we work with is, oh, I'm, you know, just getting older or I'm, you know, lots of, I don't want to say excuses, but sort of the normalization of, oh, you know, these aches and pains and joint pain, just part of, you know, getting older. But usually chronic uh, inflammation is a big driver in these cases, or again, at least a, a component of what is leading to joint pain. Um, another symptom or another few symptoms associated with chronic inflammation include fatigue, brain fog, and difficulty concentrating. These are, are big ones we also see with clients, um, insomnia and sleep issues, headaches and migraines, weight gain or shifts with weight, uh, particularly around the um, abdominal area, and also just poor metabolic health. So inflammation is a big, big driver here. Lastly, digestive symptoms, heartburn, loose stools, bloating, constipation, the whole gamut um, really of digestive symptoms can be associated with inflammation. And Abby's going to expand on this in a minute because inflammation and gut health have a, are, are very, very interconnected. So um, she'll expand on this in a minute, but just to point out that if you experience overt digestive symptoms, it's likely that there's an inflammatory component to this. These are some of the most common symptoms that we see. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but if you know you are experiencing any of these symptoms, it might indicate that we need to go inflammation hunting and figure out what is going on here. From a condition or disease state perspective, I just want to mention a couple of the actual kind of, you know, medical diagnoses or medical conditions that are associated with chronic inflammation. Some big ones being osteoarthritis, heart disease, type two diabetes, autoimmune disease, IBS, IBD. Um, low grade inflammation, like I mentioned, is, is really involved with most all disease states. Um, those are some big ones. And the women's health dietitian in me has to uh, call out that um, PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, low-grade inflammation is present in nearly all women with PCOS. And it's also a, a really essential feature of endometriosis. And I find in practice that these uh, women that, you know, have these conditions, inflammation is not being talked about. And, you know, interestingly, women are kind of only being uh, offered birth control often, which is associated with higher levels of inflammation, but we'll, we'll save that combo for another, another episode. 
So, um, so if you experience any of these symptoms, if you have a diagnosis in terms of one of these medical conditions that I mentioned, this episode and our next episode really diving into strategies for lowering inflammation is going to be super, super helpful. It's crazy to me that it's not brought up around some of these conditions when it's like just as you know in the intro of this episode it's like inflammation is thrown around like a word that you know for a lot of a lot of people like don't really understand like all right what what's going on but yet when we're actually in you know the office with our primary care or with someone like that it's not actually brought up in terms of a contri- contributing factor to many of these um you know health dynamics that that so many people are in desperate search of finding some relief to and anything that could turn the volume down on the like severity or the frequency or the symptoms. And like, there's so much that we have influence over in this inflammation um, kind of cascade in the body. I know. It boggles my mind that I'm like, we talk about it so much in like the media, but like the, that word is like a naughty word. When I it know. It, to, like, like you go on TikTok or, you know, just on Instagram, any of these platforms, it's like everyone's talking about inflammation. Yeah. But, you know, to your point, in our actual healthcare system and with all the knowledge that we have, I feel like inflammation is only being brought up when, you know, someone is, is you know, approaching or in an active disease state. Like, you know, okay, we have irritable bowel disease or we have, you know, some type of uh, massive, um, you know, inflammatory condition, autoimmune disease. And there's no really talk about it outside of that, which is crazy. And certainly, which kind of pertains to what I'm going to cover now, there's not a lot of like preventative action in terms of like, hey, let's get a pulse on some inflammatory markers and pick up on on things early or get a sense of why we might be experiencing X, Y, and Z, which is frustrating. Oh, yeah. I mean, why would we do that when we could just take Advil or Tylenol or like, because it's like, those are the, it's like, oh, I have inflammation. So I was given you know, Advil or Tylenol or some like consistent dosage of these to be taking in your mm-hmm. life. But there's there's no root cause to that. We're just putting that's, hey, we are band-aiding right over that tack in your foot with that. Yep. And, you yep. know, there there are time and place for those types of, of medicines, like absolutely. But just to really plant the seed of like, oh, that's the band-aid. That's mm-hmm. the numbing lotion. That's the like, nobody's talking about the tack. And we need to like yep. first identify the tack, which... Jill is going to do now. Hey, Jillian here. If you suspect that you might be dealing with hormonal issues based on your symptoms, or you have a confirmed hormonal condition like PCOS, endometriosis, PMDD, or hypothyroidism, chances are you haven't been given the best tools or support to address your hormonal symptoms effectively. I know because I've been there and I've really experienced firsthand just how frustrating it can be to navigate your hormonal health and your chronic symptoms in our conventional healthcare system. But the truth is establishing a supportive foundation with your nutrition and knowing how to confidently nourish your body and your unique needs is the number one place to start for healing your hormones naturally. I am so passionate about hormone health and have really made it my life's mission to provide women with the comprehensive support and tools they need to balance their hormones effectively. This is exactly why I created my self-study program, Eat to Heal Your Hormones. 
This program walks you through everything you need to know about your hormones, how to assess for patterns of hormonal imbalance, and helps you identify the root causes driving your symptoms. Eat to Heal Your Hormones teaches you exactly how to eat to support your body's unique needs, how to harness the power of functional nutrition to balance your hormones, how to supplement strategically, and how to end confusion and stress around food for good. If you struggle with symptoms like acne, miserable or irregular cycles, head hair loss, weight gain, fatigue, or anxiety, this self-study program is for you. Eat to Heal Your Hormones gives you access to the proven blueprint that I've used to help hundreds of women balance their hormones. This low-cost self-study program is truly the best place to start for healing your hormones naturally. You can access the program using the link in our show notes. So yes, we've talked about kind of um, signs and symptoms in terms of what to overtly look for or assess. And now I want to talk about labs. Um, And I I want to preface this by saying that there are a lot of different patterns, a lot of different labs and a lot of different patterns with labs that can indicate a potential problem with chronic low-grade inflammation. And there's just a lot that you could assess. But what we really wanted to focus on today were some of the most kind of common labs that we might recommend if you're thinking about chronic inflammation and you want to get a sense of like, is this an issue for me or not? Um, and we wanted to talk about some things that would be accessible for you that you could realistically ask your provider for and that they would run. So that's what we're going to focus on today. The first lab, which is um, one that we really like is, um, HSCRP or high sensitivity C-reactive protein. This is a test that is measuring C-reactive protein levels in the blood. And C-reactive protein is a is an acute phase reactant, which basically means it, it increases in response to inflammation. So we typically recommend the HSCRP, not just the CRP test, um, which is a very sensitive test. Um, it is not a specific test, but it is a very sensitive test. This means that it can pick up on low levels of inflammation, which is great, but it can't tell us, again, what what the source is. It can't tell us where the inflammation is coming from. So if our HSCRP is elevated, we will have to, you know, do some digging, do that inflammation hunting to understand what's the source, what are the things driving the inflammation. But this can be a great lab marker to start with, um, just to kind of you know, see what's going on, get a pulse on any potential elevation with inflammation. And again, to, to point out um, what I just mentioned in regards to birth control being a, being kind of the primary recommendation for women with PCOS and endo, if you are currently on hormonal birth control, this marker may elevate your HSCRP. Um, that is a very common thing that happens on hormonal birth control. So just important to be aware of things that could be, you know, elevating the, the HSCRP. The uh, next lab that we recommend is homocysteine. Homocysteine is an amino acid um, derived from methionine that can be measured through a simple blood test. So again, you know, pretty accessible. And when homocysteine levels are elevated, this can be indicative of inflammation. As always, there's nuance with these labs, but it it can be indicative of inflammation. Um, And it can also indicate low levels of um, other vitamins that are important, specifically things like B12, folate, and B6. Um, This marker uh, in particular, this homocysteine value, can be helpful for a variety of people, but it's definitely particularly relevant for individuals uh, with heart disease or with a family history of heart disease. Um, So something to just think about there. 
The next lab that we might recommend is um, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. This is potentially a helpful test for evaluating um, systemic inflammation. And this test is often used in autoimmune disease and for monitoring, you know, treatment or response to interventions, um, you know, in those cases. But in general, it can be useful for evaluating systemic inflammation. And basically what this test um, involves is measuring how fast your red blood cells sink to the bottom of a test tube um, over the course of an hour, to put it like very simplistically. And a high sedimentation rate indicates high levels of inflammation. Our next marker is ferritin. Ferritin is another blood marker that can be really helpful to look at when we're thinking about inflammation. Ferritin is a storage protein for iron and Ultimately, if you're requesting a ferritin, you're probably going to want to request a full iron panel. But um, speaking specifically to uh, ferritin, this can be a helpful assessment of potential inflammation. Definitely nuance here, and we want to look at the full iron panel and potentially some other vitamins and cofactors. But it's worth mentioning ferritin because it is another acute phase protein that increases with inflammation. And it's also a really, you know, kind of, again, accessible and easy lab to request from your doctor. Most doctors should be willing to run a ferritin. And if our ferritin is super high, um, you know, that could be an indication that something's going on with inflammation um, that we may want to investigate more deeply. Uh, the last one we have on our list here is the omega-3 index. Um, this is definitely one of our favorites. Certainly, yeah, I don't want to speak for you, Abby. One of my favorites. Um, I run a lot of omega-3 or essential fatty acid panels, which does include an omega-3 index, um, which I really like. And I wish you know more more providers would use this test because I feel like this is a big one, and this also should be pretty easy and accessible. Um, but basically, the omega-3 index is measuring the proportion of omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA, in red blood cell membranes. We'll talk about, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, essential fatty acids more in our next episode. But um, basically, these essential fatty acids are very important, these anti-inflammatory omega-3 fatty acids. And this uh, omega-3 index is a reflection of your omega-3 status over the last four months. So it's like a good indicator of your um, longer term omega-3 status. You know, it's, it's not kind of changing moment to moment or day to day. Maintaining healthy levels of these essential fatty acids is really, really key for our overall health. And a low omega-3 index is highly correlated with inflammation, specifically chronic inflammation. Ideally, we want our omega-3 index to be at least 8% and ideally between 8 to 12%, just to kind of give you a benchmark. Um, and because I wanted to share this ne next statistic, which uh, reported that most U.S. adults have an omega-3 index below 4%. That's wild. Yeah. And we definitely see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, when I see a, a good, really balanced um, essential fatty acid panel and a, and a good omega-3 index, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, it's just you don't see it as much because, you know, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about in the next episode. But yeah, I feel like more often than not, we see them. Yeah. Tanked. And I feel like I see it only in people who are like really paying attention, like eating a lot of the foods mm -hmm. that we're going to talk about and like doing like a lot of the strategies. Um, and I think when we think about like lab work like this, this is where like being an advocate in your own 
healthcare is going to be really important. Do you need to run every single one of these labs? Like, no. But I do think, um, Jilly and I both really feel that like some surveillance over annual or even like every two years to get some of these labs, because we want to see when things shift too. Not just, yeah. oh, I'm inflamed right now. But like when we think, when we work with clients, looking at the timeline is so important. So it's like, when did things start to shift? Not only when did symptoms start to happen, but do we have any blood labs from the past year, two years, three years that we could reference and see where did these markers start to change? And so that's a big thing of kind of choosing, you know, even just HSCRP is a really great kind of basic inflammatory marker, getting, you know, some iron panels, things like that, ferritin, like having those more regularly on your labs, every annual physical that you go to, or, um, you know, something so that there's, it's not just, oh, I was great. So I don't have to measure it again. It's like, no, these are things that we want to get some like history on. So when, and if not when, but maybe if (laughs) things do shift, we can have more data to like, do we change a lifestyle? Do we move into a new house? Did we, you know, start eating differently? Did we like have a stressful event? Like kind of being able to think through some things and start to then identify like, oh, I can peel back and kind of understand maybe maybe some of where it came from or work with a provider who might help you to figure out where yeah. it came from. Yeah, 100%. I really like that you point out just the you know, importance and helpfulness of having those trends to to monitor. And we, uh, Courtney and I give our clients often like a list of labs to request, you know, at their annual PCP visit, um, even just like beyond working with us in terms of being able to kind of have those routine check-ins. And, you know, I'm, I'm not even asking people to, you know, uh, request all of the things that we just mentioned. Um, typically the HSCRP and a full iron panel yeah. are, are kind of, I usually throw a homocysteine on there too. So I don't always, I think it depends on the, the, you know, individual, but I do, I, I agree with you. I think that's like a valuable thing regardless of kind of like the, um, family history or, the, or the individual's cardiac history. I do think there's benefits to, to testing that annually. Do you get pushback on that from providers? I think probably on the I feel homo- like I only get it when I run it myself on yeah, clients. Probably on the homocysteine because sometimes it just doesn't yeah. get run. Um, yeah. I feel like the, the HSCRP, that one's like pretty like if you ask for it, yeah. I feel like I see it run. It's like very standard. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like the ferritin's standard yep. too. Like that's, I mean, that's the way a lot of yeah. conventional medicine just looks at iron status mm-hmm. where we're not actually getting full iron like insight into iron status with just running a ferritin. But, you know, if it does come back elevated, it does get some insight of like, okay, there's like an inflam- mm-hmm. inflammatory dynamic kind of going on. And Jillian and I will see that in clients also. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just kind of tells us like, okay, like we got we got some more like we're going to put the puzzles together because that's that's what we all are. We're just like a mosaic. Yeah. <laughs> build what's kind of going on and what levers we're going to pull. I love that. Um. Okay, awesome. So those are um, some helpful labs to consider. And, you know, just to reiterate, you don't have to request all of these, but, you know, um, even just a, a couple of these, like we mentioned, could be a good starting point to get a pulse on on what might be going on, especially if you're experiencing any of the, you know, signs or symptoms that we mentioned earlier. So Abby, will you start talking a little bit about root causes? Like what, we're talking about inflammation here. Like what the heck causes it? <laughs> yeah, like what's the thumbtack? Yeah, Everyone's what's like, the come thumbtack? on already. Tell us, it, tell us the, about the thumbtack. Like totally. <laughs> All right. So first one is poor gut health. 
So there's various dynamics in the gut that can contribute to chronic inflammation. So we can have a lack of beneficial microbes that are protecting the balance of the immune system and the production of anti-inflammatory compounds that happen as byproducts from those beneficial bacteria. So when we have low levels of beneficial bacteria, we can see less of a protection from elevations in inflammation in the gut. Because remember, inflammation is an immune response. So anytime we're kind of impacting regulations around the immune system, we might see that inflammation start to creep up because we're not keeping it in balance. So it's always it's always about this balance. Um, as well as we can see the presence of pathogenic organisms. So dysbiosis is a term that's kind of referring to an overgrowth of sometimes opportunistic microbes that could be bacteria or fungus. We could see pathogenic parasites and worms. We can also even see associated byproducts for many of these organisms, such as LPS endotoxins. Those are kind of inflammatory byproducts that some of these organisms produce that are very irritating to the immune system. And those will kind of activate that chronic immune uh, reactions triggering inflammation. We can see breakdown in the protective gut barrier known as intestinal permeability or more trendy leaky gut, very like valid things that happen in the gut, but that can be a driver of chronic inflammation actually leading to inflammation in the systemic body, but being driven by dynamics that are happening in the gut because we want the gut to have a strong barrier and not have an over-communication of contents moving from the gut into the systemic body in a way that they shouldn't be. So it's a breakdown in the barrier, like a leaky fence um, that, can, that can happen, that can drive inflammation. We often see that um, in a lot of skin conditions, in a lot of joint pain, in a lot of um, kind of those inflammatory symptoms that are presenting in the body. So lots of dynamics in the gut can drive inflammation. Anything there, Jilly, that I overlooked that you're like, oh, this is another good one to highlight. I mean, the one thing I was going to mention, which I feel like is is said often, but I I feel like it's, you know, for anyone that hasn't heard this before, it's, you know, I think it just puts it into perspective in terms of like the importance of what you're describing and the importance of the gut in terms of, you know, chronic low-grade inflammation. Um, 70 to 80% of immune cells fall within the gut, right? So the large majority of immune cells are concentrated within the gut. So so much going on in the gut is very intricately involved with the regulation of the immune system. So you can imagine, um, you know, why some of these imbalances that Ab- Abby is describing would have such a significant impact, not just on like intestinal inflammation, but systemic inflammation. So um, I, I, I feel like, uh, again, that statistic gets thrown out a lot, not statistic, that um, that fact gets thrown out a lot, but I think it just puts it into perspective in terms of the importance of the gut health, the health of the gut and chronic, you know, low-grade inflammation. I mean, it's such an important one, two, and I think even in that same vein of like the connection, what we were talking about depression earlier, the connection of gut and our kind of mood and Mm -hmm. mental health is like very much driven through inflammatory dynamics that are, um, kind of directly move even through like the connection between our nervous system mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the gut brain um, and that kind of immune complex. So there's like everything in the body is connected. And if anyone tells you otherwise, that's just wrong. <laughs> there's nothing that happens in isolation in the body. We will tell you that a hundred percent. Yes. Yes. And there's not many things that we, I feel like we'd stand that strongly in, in terms of like, nope, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But that is, I stand with you, Abby. 
Yeah. It's funny. I feel like I um, clients will be like, especially when they're like first starting or if we're on like an intro call, they're like, yeah, so I'm not really sure if this is uh, related, but like, like I give it I to really, me. <laughs> it's totally, all related. I'm like, it yeah. is. It is. Like even before they say anything, I'm like, it totally is. Just yeah. like, I'm like, no TMI. Just like pour it out here. Yeah. But I start asking the question of like, I'm like, so like, just going to throw this question out here. Anything that you're like unsure if it's related, but this weird thing that happens to me, like even irregularly or what, like, I'm like, just, yeah. does anything come to mind? And usually someone's like, oh yeah. So there's this thing I'm like mm-hmm, that's the thing I want to know yeah about. yeah tell me more tell me more <laughs> yeah yeah it's so true tell me the weird stuff. I, pre- I preface all of my initial client sessions that like the same way and I'm like there's no such thing as TMI if you're not sure that it's relevant just say it anyway like let's put mm-hmm. it out there we want all <laughs> the information um yeah completely yeah agree. those are usually the stuff that like cascades us or cascades that's probably not the right word but whatever like catapults there we go that's what I was looking for catapults us like, into like the theories that then we're like okay well now let's get some lab data to like actually like stand on our theories yep. but I'm like I've got a pretty good idea of what we're gonna oh see. yeah it's so fun to pay to be able to paint <laughs> yeah. that picture and then yeah. you know to get lab data to really like connect all the dots it's really cool clearly Abby what, and I kind of like what we do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like this is what we get excited about. I know like, oh my I god know. we're gonna be we're going to go inflammation hunting. I know. <laughs> and continuing with our list, insulin resistance and blood sugar issues. We are broken records, but we stand by what we stand. Um, so elevated blood glucose can initiate cellular changes that induce inflammatory stimulation in tissues throughout the body and weaken the tissue's ability to resolve inflammation. So Thus, most chronic high blood sugar can contribute to more chronic inflammation responses. High blood sugar due to dietary intake can also impact the health of the microbiome that regulates inflammation. And lastly, subsequent resulting low blood sugar can also trigger a cortisol stress response from the body, which further drives an inflammatory response. So we can see from this idea of blood sugar and kind of metabolic balance, a lot of different angles that can contribute to inflammation through not just high blood sugar from like sugary foods, but all of these other kind of dynamics. Dehydration. Dehydration causes oxidative stress and reduces the body's ability to cope with stress, which can induce inflammatory responses to help to respond to stress. This is where hydration and minerals are such a foundation. So that's one of the things I think that Jillian and I kind of stress so much with clients of if they're coming to us and we see that it's like, oh, you know, I'm drinking like 30 ounces of water. Um, and we're like, okay, that's our first, like, you know, call us boring, call, like, but it's like, that's the first thing that we should be working on. And for some people, it's really hard. Like we recognize, like sometimes shifting those patterns can be hard, but it's so foundational. Yeah. If you're, if your cells are not hydrated, if you are not, I mean, just the, the quantity of fluid, yes, is important, but the minerals alongside that, you know, equally as important. If your cells are not hydrated, you know, so many, you know, processes in the body and important functions are going to be impaired, right? We can't, you know, support all of these, you know, kind of systems in the body and working properly if, if our cells are not hydrated, Uh, you know, and I even think about from, you know, a a hydration perspective or a dehydration perspective rather in terms of like clearing metabolic waste and toxins efficiently. Right. So, you know, having our our cells actually hydrated and, you know, the fluid intake itself is going to support, you know, detoxification essentially. And, um, if we're not removing 
toxins efficiently from the body, that can be another driver of inflammation. And I feel like you could go on and on with the hydration piece and it's, you know, sounds so simple, but you know, so many of us struggle with hydration. I know I almost started that one. I was like, I don't know when to stop if I really start getting into all of the various, because there is literally not a, every single chemical process that happens in the body. Water is a ingredient in both the beginning and the end. Like it is, it is mm-hmm. used to facilitate it and it is a result of it. So it's like if we don't have foundations of water and minerals to make sure the water gets into the right place, like we ain't going nowhere and doing nothing. Yep. Nutrient deficiencies. So key nutrients are required for the optimal function of the immune system and thus inflammatory responses. So foundationally, our immune system requires nutrients. I think that's something that, um, you know, we think about like boosting the immune system when it's like cold and flu season, but like our immune system needs nutrients constantly, um, not just when we have a cold or a flu or like the risk of, it's like all, all year round, we want to be thinking about what are we fueling our body with to support our immune system. So we're thinking about vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, B vitamins, vitamin A. This list goes on to many other key nutrients that are supplied through the diet predominantly to maintain a healthy and balanced immune response. So excessive intake of highly processed foods. So high, highly processed foods often contain high levels of inflammatory compounds such as high fructose corn syrup or refined carbohydrates that might drive elevated blood sugar reactions. Um, they could include chemical ingredients such as colors or preservatives that can negatively impact the microbiome and damage our cellular immune tolerance, as well as higher levels of refined seed oils that contribute to imbalances in our omega-3 and omega-6 ratios that can influence inflammatory responses in the body. So again, lots of different perspectives to how these highly processed foods might be interacting with our cells, our microbiome, our inflammation balance all to contribute to more chronic inflammation. And to to even just kind of piggyback on that in terms of, you know, or another perspective with the, you know, kind of ultra processed foods or highly processed foods, they're, they're usually nutrient depleted. So in terms of, you know, the nutrient deficiency point you just made, oftentimes, you know, outside of, of some of the kind of, you know, inflammatory processes that certain things can contribute to. It's also like, what are we lacking if, you know, most of our diet is nutrient depleted? Yeah. And I think, I always think the concept of like, this is where like digestion, just we're like a car, like running digestion, just taking digestion of one, you know, one facet of the body's function actually creates some inflammation in the process of digesting food. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the food that we eat needs to have even just some foundational level of nutrient density to it for us to even come out like net net, like neutral. Mm -hmm. But the goal would be to eat a very nutrient dense meal so that we come out actually getting benefit of, you know, kind of overcoming some of that just, you know, energy consumption and like heating up just like a car when we drive it, it's hot at the end of it our body's like very much the same way. So from exactly your point of like, if these foods are literally like negative in terms of nutrients, we're actually not only, yeah, getting some inflammatory compounds maybe from the foods, but we're also like not even overcoming our own deposit that we took out from our own body to run the very systems that we need to run. Yeah. Which is, which is crazy to think about, but I, I like love that perspective. I love the way you describe it. You have the best analogy. I think about that one all the time. <laughs> 
I love it. Lack of sleep. So sleep disorders are considered an independent risk factor for chronic inflammation. That's like a big statement right there. So sleep is when the body repairs. And when we have a reduced quality or quantity of sleep, that's going to alter the body's stress response, contributing to elevated blood pressure, high blood sugar reactions, and impairs the body's detoxification system so we can't take out our trash as efficiently, all of which is going to contribute to a higher likelihood of chronic inflammation. We've got chronic stress. Chronic activation of cortisol leads to stress on tissues, resulting in the depletion of key nutrients to combat stress, contributing to nutrient deficiencies. We can lead to more of a breakdown in the gut lining, that gut permeability dynamic, because cortisol is a wear and tear hormone and is looking to mobilize nutrients from kind of our other tissues, the gut lining being a very readily available source of additional proteins and amino acids when we're in a state of high stress, especially chronic high stress, and contributing to inflammation. We can see poor blood glucose control um, and many other shifts in the body to short-term survival that triggers chronic inflammation due to that kind of chronic stress dynamic. And the last, environmental toxins. So exposures to various type of environmental chemicals induce the production of reactive oxygen species that when in excess of our anti-inflammatory mechanisms promote inflammation and when exposure is chronic can contribute to chronic inflammation in the body. And so this category of environmental toxins can certainly be kind of exposure to things like plastics, things like our um, kind of hormone disrupting chemicals from even cleaning products, personal care products. We've kind of dove into that in some past uh, episodes, but this is also where we can think about things like mold toxicity. And we can think about exposures to things in our environment, both kind of man-made and, you know, environmentally made, I guess we could call it from the mold perspective. Hey, Abby here. I wanted to check in with you all about your gut health foundations. As you know, we talk a lot about the importance of practicing the foundations as the first place to start in your health journey. But what I hear from working with many of you is that you could use even more specific guidance on how to personalize those foundations to address your gut health. If you're struggling with bloating, constipation, loose stools, gas, or other frustrating digestive symptoms, I know how overwhelming navigating through conflicting and even extreme health guidance can be. That is why I created the Nourish Gut Guide a self-paced course that guides you in personalizing the essential foundations that must exist to heal your gut symptoms. This $200 course is meant to be your start-to-finish resource before you waste countless hours Googling elimination diets, spending hundreds on supplements, or even investing thousands in functional testing. After all, I've seen it countless of times in clients that when you master your gut health foundations, those additional expenses aren't even needed or if and when they are, the process is so much more successful when you do. So join us inside of the Nourish Gut Guide to discover how to practice the foundational steps using the tools you already have access to, to eliminate your poop problems and build long-term resilient gut health. Yeah, so many things that can drive or contribute to chronic inflammation. And we could definitely probably continue, you know, adding to this list. But again, I think Abby just did a really phenomenal job calling out some of the the big factors 
that contribute to chronic inflammation, things that we may want to be aware of, things that you know we may want to explore more deeply, or you, you may want to explore more deeply rather. So now that you have a better understanding of what the heck inflammation actually is, how to assess for chronic inflammation, and, and what some of these primary root cause drivers are, we want to take just a minute to call out some of the common misconceptions or, you know, kind of some of the mistakes that we see when people are, you know, making changes to lower inflammation when they're, um, you know, talking about thinking about inflammation, particularly in the online space, we, we see a lot of this. So just want to call out a few big things that we think might, you know, resonate with all of you. So probably one of the biggest mistakes we see is the um, over fixation on the elimination of foods for trying to lower inflammation and generally just the demonization of food. So, you know, this food is inflammatory, that food is inflammatory. There's so much of that in the online space. And I want to be crystal clear that yes, Certain foods absolutely contribute to inflammation or drive an inflammatory response in the body. And generally, a diet that is higher in ultra-processed foods is associated with the promotion of inflammation. But focusing solely on eliminating foods to lower inflammation, one, creates a ton of stress typically. Um, and, And in our experience working with hundreds and hundreds of clients over the years, the elimination focused approach just really misses the mark in terms of actually moving the needle with people's health and with chronic inflammation. So we feel really strongly that the focus should always be on first and foremost, building a super supportive foundation with your nutrition and lifestyle habits at baseline. Essentially all of the things that Abby and I covered in the first season of the podcast extensively. So If your blood sugar is all over the place because your meal timing is erratic, if your sleep schedule and circadian rhythms are super disruptive, no amount of eliminating foods is going to move the needle with with chronic inflammation. It just isn't. So we really need to focus on um, creating that supportive, solid foundation. And I, I and I don't, you know. I probably sound like a little aggressive here, but it's something that I I just see so often. And, you know, people are like spinning their wheels, trying to like, you know, cut out all the things. And, you know, as one of our, our you know, dietitian colleagues always says, Sarah Marlette, who's on the podcast, it's like, you know, stepping over $100 bills to pick up pennies. Like, yes, these, you know, more pro-inflammatory foods or anti, anti-inflammatory foods matter, but only in the context of like, what does our foundation look like? So just something to keep in mind there. Once you do have that solid foundation in place, that's when we encourage focusing on, you know, what you can actually add, right? From a nutrition perspective to support your body and to effectively lower inflammation. And we'll talk a lot about this in the next episode and and give you a lot of really um, amazing specific tools and strategies to explore. But ultimately, I think like physically and mentally, the addition nutrition approach is where I really see the needle move with my clients. I couldn't agree more. And I think that just coming out and like saying it like hard is is absolutely necessary more so now than like ever before, because it. Yeah, I think the. There's, you know, and there's a lot of like, if you go to a lot of big functional medicine clinics, like they use very extreme elimination diets as part of their protocols. That is not, Jillian, I do not believe that that is a helpful tool to start. You know, there are some like therapeutic 
explorations in foods that can be helpful. But where we, what we often see is like depletion of beneficial gut microbes. And like we have to feed those gut microbes and we have to feed them like varieties of starchy foods and colorful foods and plant-based foods that have, you know, actual nutrients that are going to like feed those gut bugs to then build tolerance in the immune system. Then what we can often see is when we get clients that are on like very restricted diet or low FODMAP diets for extended periods of time, like we often already know what we're going to see a lot of times when it comes to some of the like microbial populations and and some of the the pieces. And it's also just like really stressful. Um, mm-hmm. And we're more likely to also see then under eating, which is another stressor that is going to then drive kind of dysfunctions in cortisol. And we're going to see blood sugar and we're going to see all of these things that can result from just this fixation on what can I remove? Because that again, to come back to our thumbtack in the foot analogy, is not doing anything about the thumbtack. Like there is a reason why the body is responding maybe negatively to some of these foods because we we do recognize that, you know, people might not feel well when they eat certain foods and it's like, okay, but why would the body be responding in that way? That's the root cause, but we're going to, it's much easier to blame the food to say, no, that food's bad or at least it's bad for me. And it's like, well, actually the food is very neutral, but there's something, there's a dynamic going on in the environment of your body. There's a thumbtack somewhere that we need to find and we need to help to remedy it so then eventually you can you can eat that food again. You know, maybe the only exception to the rule here is gluten, which the protein itself for certain people can be a driver of inflammation because of immune re- reactions and things like that. But oftentimes it's really like looking for that thumbtack. And so we always want to think about like if removing a food feels really good to us, it should be a light bulb to be like, huh. I wonder what I just like relieved some pressure on, like what what thumbtack I just kind of like put a Band-Aid around or did something like more of that curiosity. It's the same idea with a supplement. If we bring a supplement in yeah. and you're like, man, that supplement made like the biggest difference in my body, it's like, well, it wasn't a deficiency of the supplement necessarily. Like what, what was the, the root for needing that supplement? in the first place. Like, you know, sometimes we can actually have a deficiency yeah. in like B vitamins or thinking, but like if we're, you know, we have a deficiency in B vitamins and we're eating B vitamins from maybe like animal proteins, but they're not getting in us, there's a root cause there. Why isn't your gut absorbing them? So we can, you know, right. we can go down rabbit holes in this yeah. conversation. Is it stress? Yeah. Is stress depleting, right? Yeah. No, but yeah. It, you bring up such an important point. And we, we touched on a little bit of this in the episode we did about, um, you know, the differences between functional Mm -hmm. and conventional medicine, where we talked about pros and cons of both, you know, functional medicine included. And this was a, you know, something that we touched on, but it's, it's so important because Abby and I are constantly having conversations about, you know, just how upsetting it is that so many people are reaching out to work with us in our practices that have, you know, taken a, a bazillion different supplements. They've removed every food from their diet at some point, you know, in time, and they are still sick. They are still symptomatic. They are exhausted and burnt out. And it's, it's, that's why we get so passionate about this message. And, um, I feel like on almost every introductory call I have with a potential client, I'm having this conversation of 
food is not the problem, right? As we, we always say, food is not the problem. It's the environment that food is going into. We have to understand what's going on um, in the body. And the goal always is to have a liberal diet and to be able to feel really good physically, you know, with, with eating a wide variety of foods. And I don't know at what point in time, like everyone got, everything shifted and everyone got so fixated on eliminating foods. And it's, it's just wild. And I, you know, it's, and it's not to, you know, shame other practitioners, but you know, it is very frustrating when people are practicing functional medicine and, you know, I'm thinking of a, a specific client who I started working with recently who had, had invested a lot of money in, you know, testing and, and you know, working at a, uh, with someone at a functional clinic for a year or like a little over a year. And, you know, we started working together and this person isn't eating breakfast. And, you know, their fiber intake is tanked. Um, just so many things that I'm like, man, what, how are these things being overlooked? But you're dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free, corn-free. It just... It really, really grinds yeah. my gears. I mean, we talk about this all the time, Jillian and I do, of like when, like when did healing become like, like it has to be hard in order to to be getting success. Like there's, I think there's like this belief and yeah, it's, you know, sometimes it's not a walk in the park. We have to like change our lifestyle and we have to change the way we eat and we have to, you know, make some changes that might feel challenging at first because all change tends to be challenging. But when we're doing it, but when did it become about deprivation, right? That's, I feel like there that's we go. The that's the word. For yes, almost. that it has to be like yeah. dep- deprivation. That's right. Of like, what can I like take away? Um, and I will say, in my own you know health experience, I went through all of that. I did all the elimination diets. I did all the things before I like knew, I guess knew better, um, and really stepped into you know sometimes we as providers have to do it all wrong first in order to, to start to see the light at the other, at the other side. But, but when we're, when you strike the balance, right. And you're just like, kind of like following, you know, you're listening to your body, you're supporting your body, you're nourishing your body. Like it, it feels easeful. It does. We promise you, like it is sometimes like, okay, you know, I got to still like make sure I'm eating breakfast and like, emphasizing the proteins and like doing some of the checklists of things that like we're working into. But as you start to continue, not only those become second nature, but you also start to look around and you're like, wow, like look at all this abundance of foods that I get to eat. Look at, you know, the things that I get to participate in. Look at like it, it does feel easeful. It will feel easeful. We see it all the time and our clients will reflect that back to us. They're like, man, when I first came, like I didn't think about anything else other than food because I just was obsessing about like, what was I going to eat next? What wasn't I going to eat next? What was going to like, you know, all the, the arithmetic and like, you know, gymnastics that were happening inside of this, many of our clients like brains in order to just try to bare minimum feed their body. And then when they kind of stepped into that ease and, and understanding of a lot of these foundations, it started to just like they were like, wow, I don't, I don't really have to think about food that much anymore, other than like when I'm hungry and I'm kind of like you know doing meal prep or just just the really like we do have to think about what we eat, but in a in a normal amount, um, and that's our that's like what like lights us up of just like ah oh, like go forth and prosper like you spread your wings you don't need us anymore <laughs> it's always the goal yeah and and you know food can 
you know, either feel neutral if you're not, you know, super into food or it can feel fun and joyful and, and exciting. And it can still feel that way on a yeah. healing journey. And I think, you know, to, to Abby's point, um, the addition nutrition approach feels so much better mentally to add on to that. It is also so much more mm. effective for actual healing. And, you know, we have years and years of experience with clients and, you know, results that have shown us that. So yes, it, it feels better mentally, but it's also the most effective way to get to where you want to go in, in my mind and in my experience. Oh, yeah. And next episode, we are going to talk all about addition nutrition in terms of really zeroing in on how do we use nutrition as a tool to target chronic inflammation. We're excited. Thank you for listening to the Your Body Has Your Back podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review and make sure to share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think might benefit from listening. Make sure to follow the Your Body Has Your Back Instagram and to share your favorite episodes. And definitely tag us as you start to live out the Your Body Has Your Back lifestyle. We can't wait to see it. If you're looking for more support on your gut and hormone healing journey, connect with Abby and I over on Instagram. You can follow Abby at Above Health, and you can follow me, Jillian, at Jillian Greaves RD. Thank you, and see you in the next episode.